And welcome to Fascinating Nouns. Now, if you are listening to this transmission, we are still the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Now, together we arrive at this curious nexus point, and we will explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. You know, I think this is going to be a very fun topic, one I've been looking forward to for a long time, but couldn't find the right way to approach it. And luckily, friend of the show, Dom exclamation point, D-O-M exclamation point, both a friend of the show and a, a friend of me personally, um, he kind of recommended the that I look into Dr. Jeffrey Meldrum, who he claims is the only person to receive grant money to study Sasquatch. Well, how could I possibly pass up that opportunity? Because Sasquatch falls into those fringe topics that I love to look into. But I have to admit, right off the bat, that Sasquatch, Bigfoot, uh, the Yahweh, the Abominable Snowman, Abominable? Abominable. Abominable. Yeah, I think that's right. Abominable Snowman. You know, none of these <laughs> really appealed to me uh, as a youth, as a youngster, as a as a wee little tyke. I just, it just wasn't for me, but that doesn't mean that, uh, you know, I really poo-pooed it necessarily, but I, it just, it wasn't something I ever really kind of looked into. I mean, it seems like something that was classically folklore, a myth, a legend, uh, nothing that really had any teeth to being real, but it turns out yeah, you know, maybe there's something to this. You know, I, I read Dr. Meldrum's book, Sasquatch, Where Legend Meets Science, and, and I have to say I was intrigued by a couple of topics. It made me think. It made me raise an eyebrow. And I think that that's the point of these types of things is, is to say that, hey, this thing that people are dismissing out of hand, there's something going on here. And I think when I finished the book, I thought to myself, there's something going on here. I don't know what. But there's something going on here. And I hope that when you listen to this episode that you have that same feeling. You know, maybe you're not going to become a believer. Maybe, you know, who knows what's going to happen. But at least you'll think about it and it will entertain you and interest you. And that, my friends, is the point of this show uh, in a nutshell. So let's get right into this with Dr. Jeffrey Meldrum. First of all, Dr. Meldrum, thank you so much for being on the show today. And also... Let's get your bona fides out of the way right off the bat. So you are a professor of anatomy and anthropology at Ohio, uh, Idaho State University. I always want to say Ohio, but Idaho, which is a much cooler <laughs> state in my opinion. Uh, and you study primate evolutionary biology, specifically human locomotion and bipedalism. Uh, this is very specific, uh, you know, I mean, but also uh, very interesting. So how did you, how did that become your path? Yes, no, it's funny when you said that, this cartoon jumps into my head that I saw one time of these uh, professors at a dinner party, you know, and they're having drinks and they're chatting, and the, and the one professor corrects the others and said, uh, the other and says, oh, no, that's, uh, that's not quite accurate. I don't study, you know, the larval form of this particular worm. I study the eyelashes of the larval <laughs> form of this particular worm. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> so it, we, yeah, yeah. we do tend to um, specialize. I'm, you know, in a very broad sense, I'm, I'm interested in, in form and function of anatomy. I mean, the, the marvelous machine that is 
not only the human body, but to better appreciate our own anatomy, uh, to consider it on a, com- in a comparative basis, on mm-hmm. a comparative basis mm-hmm. with other animals. And of course, our closest kin are the primates. And so the, I, I ended up particularly interested in locomotion, quite, quite honestly, uh, it was seeded to some degree by my youthful interest in Sasquatch hmm. and Sasquatch footprints and how the interpretation of, of movement um, relates, correlates to the, the expression of that signature of movement in, in the footprint trace. Dr. Grover Krantz had written a couple of very interesting papers on the Sasquatch foot making inferences about that. And so that was always kind of rattling around in my head mm. from a very young age. And that's how I, I became interested. When I was in college as an undergraduate, uh, see, I graduated from, uh, I went to college in 79. So it was right on the kind of the tail end of the, of the very highly publicized discoveries of Lucy and her ilk, right. afferensis, yeah, yeah, yeah. which really pulled the curtain back on the subject of the, the advent of, of human bipedalism. And I remember I was probably a junior or senior undergraduate and I had, and I was right at a point where I was, I was kind of vacillating. I went to college with the intent of going to veterinary school. Oh, get out of here. Oh, that's great. That was, I was pre-vet, you know, and, um, but at that point I was starting to be, (laughs) feel the seduction of basic science and, scientific research and, and quite honestly, academia opened up this whole, you know, as a youngster, as so many kids, I think do, they have this sort of abstract notion of scientists or these men in white lab coats that are doing these strange rites and rituals, you know, behind the curtain, so to speak in the Emerald (laughs) city. And, and I had no idea how a scientist would make a living. What, what, what was the job of a scientist? And so it was, participating in academia that I suddenly had these role models of these academic professors conducting research projects and having the opportunity to do some hands-on research and participate in that process and, and, um, that, that opened that door. So it was right about that time, uh, of, of that kind of vacillation in my career development. There was a publication. I was taking interest in some of these uh, primary publications in anthropology, and this phenomenal paper came out um, on uh, the locomotor anatomy of Australopithecus afarensis, and it was authored by the faculty at uh, Stony Brook, uh, State University of New York at Stony Brook. And I just, uh, man, that was that was like a magnet. I couldn't put that down, and was just fascinated. I had just taken a human anatomy course and. Anyway, that, that was sort of the turning point, I think, the, the point of divergence from my intended path to veterinary school. That and the C I got in organic chemistry. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're not alone <laughs> in that one. Most people who are organic chemistry yeah. always get you. You know, and I love what, what I love about that is I'm kind of fascinated with these, these things in people's lives, these, you know, these singular moments or, or series of moments that really set you yeah. on an interesting path, you know? And so th- that's interesting. And I want to talk, so first of all, I've got to say, you know, we're going to be talking about Sasquatch and you wrote this great book, um, Sasquatch Legend Meets Science. And you're also the editor in chief of the uh, Relic Hominoid Inquiry. And, you know, 
I'm gonna t- I'm gonna tell a little bit. Of, I, want, I want to talk about a little bit about my interest mm-hmm. in Sasquatch and why I want to talk about this. But first, you know, while we're on the subject, I, I want to really get a sense of you know. You mentioned this paper, and that's all well and good. But you were in your professional career at that point. I'm much more interested in the things that shape our interest when we're much younger. Oh, yeah. You know, I've said on this program several times. You know, it's that that those puberty years, right? That eight to thirteen, yeah. the stuff you're interested in that period of time really sets you on your course. You know, I'm a lifelong pro wrestling fan because of that, <laughs> and so, you know, and, and I want to hear about how you got interested, you know, in your yeah. youth with Sasquatch and why it captiv- how it captivated you, and why specifically it captivated you. Well, exactly, yeah, and and this is a story I've I've told many times. So I'm sure some of your viewers will have already heard it, but um, I. I was fascinated with uh, natural history, all aspects of natural history from very early on. And and my parents, um, to their credit, were, you know, in an age before the Internet and flashy cable documentaries and so forth on television. They did uh, uh, all they could to, to cultivate those interests and provide opportunities. I remember when we got, you know, in addition to our World Book Encyclopedia set, you know, there's a there's a. Um, <laughs> you know, an anachronism there. Talk yeah, about exactly. relic. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, we got, yeah. I got, had the international wildlife encyclopedia set, which just, wow. you know, okay. I mean, I just, that was my, instead of comic books, it was go to one of those and sit and fall asleep at night, reading about animals all around the world. And, and that was percolating. And, uh, uh, I can remember in fifth grade, the kids at school were kind of abuzz about this advertised movie that was in town. And it was a documentary which showcased the Patterson-Gimlin film. It was, it was mm. the documentary that, that Roger Patterson and, and his collaborators had, had produced. And one of the first public showings of that took place in Spokane, Washington, where I happened to be. And so I can remember running home from school and looking in the paper and finding that advert and, uh, and, uh, uh, cornering my dad and say, we've, we've got to go see this tomorrow, you know? And, uh, so he, he, uh, true to form was, uh, was very, um, supportive and, and, uh, so he and I and my younger brother went and I, I tell you that, that did, uh, I can, I still have, you know, they're spotty memories, but it, it, it made a huge impression. I remember we were sitting in the third row. We got there, made sure we got there early enough to get a really good seat. And and to be looking up there at that big screen and see this creature walk across the screen in in, uh, in all its glory. And, and it surely made a uh, an impression upon me. And, and um, in follow-up to that, I mean, I... I of course, they were handing out uh, introductory um, membership forms and newsletters for the Northwest Research Association, which was uh, Patterson's right. creation, trying to you know generate a revenue stream to support his research in the field. And uh, amongst the uh, wares offered was his little book, uh, 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 Bonneville Snowman of America. Uh, at membership also brought with it, this is kind of an interesting anecdote, uh, uh, membership brought with it the right, the privilege to order a replica footprint cast. This first one was from the film site. And, uh, and also huh. um, uh, on this side of the, of the room, which you can't see over my shoulder, is uh, an 11 by 14 black and white print of the Patterson-Gimlin film. 
And I also got a five by seven color print. Now those, I, you know, and, and, and I mentioned those because they, they have proved to be really significant pieces because these were prints made very early on and they're remarkably clear and sharp and crisp. And, um, uh, a lot of the artifacts that, that we deal with, with the, uh, generational, um, iterations of copies of the film today are, are completely absent and, uh, very impressive. So, I mean, I, I was immersed. I was, uh, uh, you know, I wasn't, uh, compulsive or obsessive, but, but, uh, you know, th- this was more than just a passing hobby. I mean, it, it became kind of consuming. I, this is what I was going to do. You know, I was going to participate in this. And the next year in sixth grade, I remember we actually did a unit on primates and we had a teacher. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. again, the coincidence. Yeah. I mean, huh? you know, you look back in hindsight and, and uh-huh. the way things line up, I guess anytime, you know, if you're looking from point A to point B in hindsight, it appears that things line up. But I'm telling you, it was uncanny the way the way things seem to have lined up in this case. And uh, uh, and this so this unit on primates, which, again, solidified and bolstered these interests that I had. But uh, as I remember, we were... Uh, looking at sources of information and, and, uh, we were brainstorming on the chalkboard, all the characteristics that set primates apart from other mammals. And, mm-hmm. um, so going about it in a very thoughtful way. I mean, here we were listing synapomorphies. In other words, we were listing d- shared derived traits that define the clade of primates at a time when cladistic uh, taxonomy was, wasn't, was nothing, not even a twinkle in some biologist's eye somewhere. <laughs> right. So it was very, uh, very, very good. But, uh, I, then we were listing individual examples, different, uh, types of primates that people were familiar with common names and so forth. And someone raised their hand in an effort, I'm sure just to be kind of cute or smart, smart Alec. Right. And said Bigfoot. Well, rather than just blow it off, rather than just dismiss it, you know, or, 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 um, trivialize it, uh, she was very methodical and she said, well, how do witnesses describe this being, this entity, this creature? And people were, you know, had all, cause of course this was the, the impact of this film. And of uh, course right. it's followed up shortly after by an article in Reader's Digest, a, a short version of the Argosy uh, magazine article. And so a lot of people had this in their homes, uh, at this time, people were enumerating the way they were described. And she said, well, it sounds like if Bigfoot exists, then it would be a primate. Right. And so then of course the next uh, task was to volunteer to do a report. Each of us had to do a class presentation on a primate of our choice. (laughs) Your first paper. And boy, my hand shot (laughs) up. And again, you know, what are the odds that I happen to be the one, one yeah. of two that I had a, I had a partner with it. She paired us off and I can, because of that, I can remember this kid's name, David K <laughs> from sixth grade, you know, we did the report and I, it was so funny. I mean, just to show you how the world, again, how things line up, no sooner had I been uh, given this assignment than it occurs to me, hmm, I've got my book that I purchased and these illustr- these pictures, but where am I going to find any information on this right. topic? You know, there were there really weren't entries in World Book Encyclopedia, and it sure it wasn't listed in my International Wildlife uh, 
It's like, <laughs> yeah. And so right. she said uh, very wisely, again, my, my teacher, Mrs. Davis, said, go to your librarian. You know, when you have a question, go to your librarian. And so we did. And uh, this was what was funny. Uh, she happened to have a substantial clippings file in her, in her uh, file cabinet behind her desk there. And she pulls out a file labeled Bigfoot Sasquatch. And it had all these newspaper articles and magazine articles. And she that had... That she had clipped out? That, that like she, she per- That she had clipped, yes. Oh, my God, that's amazing. You know, and especially at this age, at this stage, or date, rather, this date, uh-huh. very early on, it wasn't the stuff of, uh, you know, it wasn't considered an evergreen topic by journalism, really, I didn't think at that time. But, uh, I mean, it did capture some attention here and there. But in any case, uh, she also had a book, the brand spanking new copy of John Green's On the Track of Sasquatch. John Green was a journalist up in British Columbia who had taken an interest in this topic because of personal interaction with some witnesses that had seen uh, a creature up along Ruby Creek, a tributary of the Fraser River there in, in the Fraser River Valley in southern British Columbia. Anyway, and so I was the first to check out this copy of the book and again, died, just digested it, devoured it. And, um, Green, Green is a very, was a very intelligent man, very, a man of, uh, of words and, uh, very articulate and, uh, and, and very logical in his presentation, but it was a very campy book. I mean, t- type written and, uh, clearly, you know, put together and st- mm-hmm. stapled binding and so forth. Wow. Okay. So, <laughs> but, but that just kind of added to the, the feel of it is this right. kind of backwoods, backcountry, you know. Real underground, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And anyway, but then the, the funny twist on all this was, years later, I was doing my first public presentation on the subject of, of Bigfoot. I had, I had been involved in an analysis of what became known as the, as the um, Redwoods video, or more infamously as the Playmate video, because mm-hmm. the hostess involved, yeah, the hostess mm-hmm. involved at one of the witnesses... Uh, she was a guest host on a documentary series, uh, or an entertainment series, not a documentary series, um, reality TV, really. I mean, they, and she was a, a former Playboy Playmate of the year. And uh, so, I mean, that, they got all kinds of mileage out of that. Playmate meets primate, beauty, oh, wow. yeah. all that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I was making a presentation up at Harrison Hot Springs at a conference that was held up there annually. First time, and... And uh, as it turned out, it was the strangest quirk again, because I'm there at the, at the desk to check in and they had no reservation for me. The host had, had neglected or some, through some oversight, I, I had no room, (laughs) right? It was, you know, it was booked up solid. Uh And so I'm sitting here thinking, uh, well, what do I, am I going to, do I, you know, can I sleep on the beach? (laughs) (laughs) And I hear this voice behind me say, of course not. You're coming home with me. And I turn around and it's John Green. Oh, wow. And, Look at uh, that. So I spent the weekend at John Green's home and his other house guest was John Bindernagel, uh, a uh, Canadian wildlife biologist who was another serious ac- uh, academician who, um, who was uh, involved in this topic as well. And so that became a, a, an amazing collaboration. But uh, as we were comparing notes, you know, and discussing this after dinner that first evening, John was, he was quite impressed with, 
you know, if I was so novice to the subject, so new to the, to the Bigfoot, uh, scene, how was it that I, that I had all this, this trove of, of, of dates and names and, and, and trivia and so forth in my head. And I, so I told him the story that we've just recounted and he's on the edge of his seat and he said, what was your librarian's name? And I said, well, I can't remember. I was, you know, sixth grade and I barely, you know, wouldn't have remembered my teacher's name in, in many Mm -hmm. instances. And he said, was it Mary Bessaker? And as soon as he said the name, the, the, the familiar ring, the penny dropped. And I thought, Yes, I think it was. And he said, that's my niece. And he what? picks up the phone. <laughs> Get out of here. That's and crazy. He dials, do, 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 you know, or I guess it would, would, wasn't even a push. It was dials, dials Mary Bessaker. And he said, Mary, yes, it's John. You'll never guess who's sitting across the table from me. And she remembered. I was the first student who had checked out that book, which her uncle had sent her upon its publication uh, those many years ago. Oh, well, wow. so you got it like from the tap. I mean, you you really oh, got it like, yeah. I mean, wow. Yeah. It's just, I mean, so it, so, you know, you talk about those formulative years. I mean, that was when I was 11 or 12 and, and, you know, things rolled on. Uh, there was a, a corner of my, my room that was, uh, that was a little shrine, if you will, or museum exhibit of Bigfoot, uh, <laughs> Bigfoot, uh, paraphernalia and so forth. I had, uh. I had a three-ring binder with all of my newspaper clippings. And, of course, even, see, then Xerox machines, copy machines, were rare. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if a business was well-established, they might have a copy machine. Remember, my dad worked for Albertsons in their general office, and they had a copy machine. Uh, uh, their regional office, that is, not, not their general that We eventually moved to Boise. But, uh, you know, so... If I went to the library and did find a book that had something about the Yeti or about Sasquatch, I had to transcribe it. So I would sit there at my mom's typewriter and henpeck, <laughs> you know, and transcribe these passages, you know, with bibliographic <laughs> references at the bottom and so forth. Right. Had all these things in my three ring binders, you know. Wow. A, a movie came out, you know, when uh, The Legend of Boggy Creek. Yeah, yeah, I've heard of it, yeah. As soon as it came to a drive in theater, uh, then we would go there to see it so that I could take my little cassette tape deck, a uh, tape recorder and record the audio as we're watching the movie, you know, and then I fall asleep listening to these, these soundtracks of these, uh, movies about Bigfoot as a kid, you know, it always <laughs> follows the Creek. That was the catch line for that. Movie. And, uh, oh, I even great. went out in the garden, you know, and I prepared a little corner with extra sand and very fine soil. I found some real, real good road dust and worked it in. So I had a really good, uh, road bed. And then I using spoons and, and trowels, I would sculpt hmm. a copy of a Bigfoot track, you know, cause I was wow. pretty artistic. And so I could look at the picture and then using that as my guide and getting it to the right scale. So I would have some sort of a facsimile to put next to my other footprint cast, you know, that I was collecting, of, you know, examples of my own footprint and our, our pets and animals that we'd encounter. And so I had those, you know, I, I had a copy of the Patterson-Gimlin tracks. I had a copy that I made. I had a copy of the Bosberg-Cripplefoot pair. Mm. You know, oh, right. Yeah, yeah. The yeah. deformity. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, 
those interests wax and wane as the years go by. And a lot of that stuff I no longer have. I still have a folder with most of the contents of that three ring binder. And, and, uh, for years we had used an, an, and, you know, people won't know what this is, an opaque projector. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> that Jeez. was a, a machine. It was like a, a box that had really bright lights and a, and an angled mirror. And you could put an object or a flat, you know, picture or a, something like that, something that, that wasn't a transparency in that box. And with that bright illumination and that angled mirror and set of lenses, you could project an image onto the wall so you could <laughs> trace it, you know, use it. I had done this large tracing, you know, it was about, oh, two and a half, almost three feet tall of the, um, the sketch that Roger Patterson had made of his vision of what a Sasquatch looked like. This was made before he saw Patty on the Patterson-Gimlin film. And uh, it was part of the logo of the Northwest Research Association. But it was one of the better depictions of what Bigfoot might have uh, looked like. And we had, my, my friend and I, uh, for our presentation back in sixth grade, had done this illustration to use as visual aid during our class presentation. Uh-huh. And I still had that. You know, and the paper was all... Was all um, aged and brown right. yeah. on the edges and everything. It was yeah. it was really quite. But I had that up on the wall too, next to the footprint cast, and yeah, it was quite the holy cow, quite the thing. So, so did you ever did you ever cite that fifth grade paper in your academic work or did you, in the bibliography? No, I don't think I did. Uh, <laughs> I'm trying to remember because there was another occasion. I mean, of course, you know, whenever I even even up into college when I took one of the GE uh, general ed classes, you know, was speech mm-hmm. and you have to do a persuasive speech. And even to this day, I still, I get students on a fairly regular basis, three or four or more. I mean, I guess in the scheme of it, that's not very many, but who, who do reach out to me directly, um, as, as a source of information for their persuasive speech mm. for or against the existence of Sasquatch. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so, I, you know, I gave a presentation, I gave a, quite a detailed uh, treatise on uh, Dr. Krantz's theory about the Sasquatch foot morphology and, yeah. and uh, you know, had, had diagrams and things to illustrate my, my talk. And so, yeah, it was kind of, uh, it was kind of a topic of uh, obsession. <laughs> well, it's great because, yeah, I mean, it's great because, you know, that set you on your path and you, I mean, you're the foremost academic expert on Sasquatch. And so that's going to lead into, you know, kind of my feelings on Sasquatch. So I'm just going to, you know, I'm an open-minded skeptic, right? Like I tend to doubt everything, but I love hearing stories and seeing if I can be convinced and seeing what, you know, I like that, that allows me to separate, you know, fact from fiction in my mind. Cause I'm very scientifically minded. And, you know, I'll be honest when I, you know, I've similarly, my grandmother was, um, despite being a devout Catholic, was really into some of these weird unexplained phenomenon. And mm-hmm. so as a kid, you know, I loved all the Bermuda Triangle, Sasquatch, right. aliens, you know, all this stuff. Yeah. But I will admit that Bigfoot was one of the things that I always was, had a, an interest in as a cool story, but like the Loch Ness Monster, I never really gave it much credence, never really thought about it. And, you know, I never really, I didn't look down on it, but I didn't, I didn't know any of the details and it just wasn't for me. You know, you know how you gravitate towards certain topics, you know, sure. and that wasn't really thing, anything that, 
you know, I really gravitated to. But then as I got older and I started doing the show and I was able to kind of investigate some topics that I thought were interesting or, you know, on the fringe, uh, I, I came a, a couple things really changed my mind on Sasquatch. The first was a book called Missing 411 by a guy named David Polites, who will not do my show, by the way. I don't know why, but will not do my show. But I loved that book. And he doesn't actually say that Sasquatch is responsible for right. all these these um, missing people in these parks, but it's a very interesting phenomenon. And he kind of hints at it, but doesn't say it outright. But right. that really changed my mind about what's going on. So much so, I don't think I've ever admitted this before, but I went in around... Uh, 2012, 2013, I went to Crater Lake for my birthday. I love national parks, so it was just an excuse to go up there. But that was one of the hot spots for disappearances and sightings and everything. And that's kind of why I went there, both to see the lake and, you know, to, to kind of see if, not that I would be captured, but, you know, you still got to go <laughs> check the place out, right? So the second one was I did an interview on this show with these two guys. We call them the Paranormal Rangers. They were two cops in the Navajo Nation mm-hmm. who, because of actually a Sasquatch report, uh, two cops making fun of a Sasquatch report is what founded these two because they weren't being, that type of topic wasn't being taken seriously. So these two were installed to look at, you know, kind of the quote unquote X-File-y types of stories in the Navajo Nation. And while I was talking to them, they told me a story about encountering two Sasquatches. Is that the right word? Sasquatch? Is it Sasquatches? It's personal preference. I, I, I treat it like deer. Dear, okay, uh, all right. <laughs> singular and plural, so okay. Sasquatch, Sasquatch. Okay, so well, two of them uh, were there, and they were throwing large boulders at them, which that was really the first time I'd ever heard a story like that. And these guys are just such straight arrows that when they tell you a story, it makes you think. And then I read your book, and you know, and I'm not blowing smoke here. It's a it's a great book, and you lay out a very interesting and compelling scientific argument. That then made me pause and say, okay, well, there's, there's must, I think there's more to this than people give it credit for. So, for example, you mentioned, you know, the Kickstarter-like bonus material you got from supporting the Patterson uh, Bigfoot Club, right? Right. The Patterson-Gimlin film, I won't go into it right now, but what's interesting about it is you made a great point in an interview that the when people see the Patterson-Gimlin footage now, it's grainy, it's out of focus, uh, you, and to quote you, you said it's kind of become a meme for that thing, that fuzzy thing in the woods that, you know, you can't ever prove and everything. Uh, the proof of it is always this, you know, this distant object that we can't quite see clearly. And that the actual Patterson-Gimlin film, that's not the case. It's very in focus. You can actually see muscles. And that's, I mean, if that's true, I've never seen it. That's a game changer. As far as what is this, it can't really be a person in a monkey suit. That type of stuff's really interesting. And, you know, actually, I want to take a step back really quickly um, mm-hmm. because you mentioned Dr. Grover Krantz, who's got mm-hmm. my favorite first name of all time. I loved Grover from Sesame Street. Um, but in he was kind of the Bigfoot scientist. Uh, you know, he was really looking at this. He had tons of footprint casts. 1996, I think, was a big year for you for you academically. So, you know, we, we talked about the previous stuff and you were interested in Sasquatch as a kid, waxes and wanes. You jumped into academia. But in 1996, you actually came across some some tracks, and I believe, you can pick up the story, but I believe you went there to see, I think you were under the impression this was kind of a hoax and not real, and then the detail changed your mind, and that can kind of lead us into how great the physical evidence really is. Right. It, yeah, I, I, it was at a point where my, the interest or the, 
the serious interest in the subject had had waned considerably, but was sort of uh, brought back to the fore by a, a couple of other circumstances. Again, uh, an, an alignment of the stars, if you will. I was actually, I became acquainted with a fellow named uh, uh, Richard Greenwell, who was the director, secretary of the International Cryptozoology Society, uh, because I was pursuing a very different topic, kind of cryptozoological topic, related topic. I was uh, at, at my my career has also uh, taken me uh, into the realm of uh, South American primate paleontology, mm. the evolution of South American primates, and I've had the opportunity to do some paleontological work in Colombia and Argentina, and you know d- discover new new taxa of uh, South American primates, extinct primates. But in any case, I was interested in stories of these giant mm-hmm. uh, monkeys, Delois's ape, as they related to some recent paleontological discoveries in Brazil of, of the remains, Pleistocene remains of giant monkeys. So I was lo- actually researching that, got in touch with Greenwell. Greenwell says, well, gee, you know, you're a primatologist. What do you think about Bigfoot? Well, you know, I was kind of ambivalent. And uh, he said, should something come to our attention, should we be requested, you know, to review some evidence or whatever? Would you be interested in participating? I said, hey, sure. You know, who wouldn't? Yeah, it'd be interesting. And a few months later, that's where the uh, Redwoods video came into play. And that kind of, uh, you know, so I, I and literally I, I went into that thinking, oh, this will be fun. This will just be an exercise in, in pointing out the zipper mm-hmm. based on the right. description and circumstances. I was quite skeptical and so, you know, and that was the uh, playmate versus primate video, right? Exactly. Right. Yeah. yeah. And this was, it was this, you know, VHS tape, mm. uh, shot at night, uh, and, uh, it was rainy and poor lighting conditions, very grainy, a lot of noise in the video. So there was only so much you could do with it, but what was there really kind of sat me up. I mean, there were some subtle aspects that were really quite, quite intriguing. Well, that got the wheels turning. And in the, in the aftermath of that is when I thought, uh, just literally on a lark was home in with family in Boise, extended family. And I turned to my brother cause all, you know, these, these latest events had sort of re- rekindled the, the nostalgia of, of, uh, our mutual right. involvement as youngsters going to see that film together you know, and, um, uh, I mean, my brother and I have kind of, uh, professionally followed very different paths or, uh, career wise, but circumstances, but in any case that, that interest has always lingered there. And I said, Hey, let's, let's go see Grover, you know, where, uh, Pullman's not that far away, not that far of a drive from Boise. Let's, you know, I've always wanted to do this. Let's go do it. So, we called ahead and sure enough, he was very gracious. Dr. Krantz was very gracious and said we'd be welcome to come up and on a weekend and, and he would come into the office on Saturday. Anyway, to make a long story short, that's, that's what set this up. So we went up, visited Grover, had this really remarkable visit with him in his lab. He was, you know, again, very uh, forthcoming, laid out his casts, let us take pictures, ask all kinds of questions. Of course, he was intrigued by my background and my apparent interest in in all of this, and uh, 
it was on the way back from that trip, all with all this, you know, primed that we made this detour and popped into Walla Walla and looked up Paul Freeman and Wes Summerlin and, and some of these other characters in the, in that region, many of, uh, a lot of, of, of which played a, a very pivotal role in much of Dr. Krantz's writing in his mm. uh, book because of the proximity Uh, He had investigated a lot of these things. And so uh, that's what put me face to face with some footprints. Uh, It was, again, one of those quirky things. It seemed too coincidental. Mm -hmm. We we, we show up at Paul Freeman's doorstep and he's just pulling into the driveway on on a Sunday, early Sunday afternoon, you know, and... uh, and, uh, he, he, you know, caught him, caught him completely off guard. He invites us in though. And he and opens up his closet and starts pulling out boxes and, and, uh, you know, at our request to see some of the footprint casts. And it was amazing. I mean, there's something about looking at an original footprint cast right? that rather than a replicas, because sometimes replicas, you know, just, you know, just like with the film, yeah, exactly. better the, the closer you are to the original, the more sense of what actually transpired is conveyed and mm-hmm. and it's that way with the footprints and and so I'm asking all these questions you know probing questions and he then eventually said well you obviously know a lot about footprints he said would you like to see some fresh tracks wow like, <laughs> yeah it's funny that exactly. that's what that I was the cat yeah <laughs> slack gone I turned to my brother and he turned to me and I said what do you mean he said well I, I that's where I was returning from when you pulled up, he said, I was up driving the foothill roads, uh, because the snows have melted back enough and I found a set of tracks, the first of this season. And I just thought, well, sure. What have we got to lose? Mm-hmm. So we piled in the truck and off we went anyway. And that's where we examined this long line, 35, 45 individual, clear, crisp individual footprints of uh, 15 inch length. And on the way up, he kept saying, you know, ah, these aren't that good. He said, I wouldn't even bother casting these. He said, I, you know, I, I've seen so many tracks that unless they're perfect or really different or exceptional, I said, I don't bother making, making casts anymore, even taking pictures. And I'm thinking this is, you know, I mean, that's not the way a scientist would think. The right. More right. Yeah. Better, right you know? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and so, we get up there and hear these tracks in the mud. I mean, and they, they are literally hours old. I mean, I knelt down, you could see skin ridge detail. You could see the dermatoglyphics on the, wow. on in places. And there's obvious signs of, of, I mean, it's just not like a bunch of, of, uh, statically stamped prosthetic feet, you know, stompers, carved wooden feet or what have you. They showed tension cracks and pressure ridges and slide-ins and, you know, the places where the toes gripped the set, the mud as, mm-hmm. as they slipped and left the, you know, the, 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 the drag of the, um, flexing toes, mud extruding up between the toes and around the feet and, you know, back behind the, the midfoot and so forth. And I'm just, I'm, I'm p- literally, uh, pinching myself thinking, uh, I, I had been given an earful as, as things kind of, uh, were coming together, uh, in the wake of my, uh, involvement with the, uh, Redwoods video, I had been given an earful about Paul Freeman and what was going on in, in that region. And <laughs> yeah, the, yeah. yeah. And, 
you know, forewarned. He's a hoaxer. He's, you know, I can't trust him and blah, blah, blah. Well, uh, so I was very skeptical, went into it open-minded and objective. I mean, obviously I was interested, impressed with what I had saw, had seen with the, his, uh, remarkable cast collection. Mm-hmm. And, uh, anyway, so yeah, that, that was a, a real turning point because, you know, the Redwoods video, it was interesting. It was kind of like, yeah, could be, but boy, if it had been nothing but that, then it probably just would have gone on and it would have been an interesting, curious experience, but nothing much more might have, you know, Greenwell might've reached out for this or that, but to have this experience and to see this remarkable, not, not one ambiguous, questionable, could it be, could it not, but a long line of impressive 15 inch tracks that were either, or either they're real or they're a very clever hoax because there's no in between. There's no ambiguity. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you know the hook was set deep, <laughs> as <laughs> I can remember. As we, I, but still, you know there was that equivocation mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. because uh, in hindsight, had I really been 100% convinced right immediately, uh, I, I wouldn't have left. I would have had my, my my brother had to be back to work. I could have made alternate arrangements i could have had him drop me at a used car or a, a, a rental car place if we could find one on sunday <laughs> right yeah yeah <laughs> that was part of the problem and so you know on that drive home the two of us are just comparing notes and thinking about this and perplexing because you know the implications were just so profound i mean literally there was that aha moment where as you're looking at these things it suddenly hits you you know before it was kind of abstract even as a youngster, you're, you're passionate, you're, you're, uh, you're, um, wrapped up and, and immersed in the subject and everything. And it's fantastical, but that's different. This was a very different experience. It was the, the concrete realization that a Sasquatch actually walked by here just last night. Mm-hmm. In other words, you're not just looking at footprints, but the footprints represent an event. Right. And. If, when, when you become, uh, familiar with and confident in your understanding of an interpretation of footprints, then that's, that's it. I'm all, you know, I'm always reminded, uh, people, it's a popular movie, so people probably will appreciate the analogy, but the gods must be crazy. Yeah. There's yeah. this scene where the, the Bushmen, uh, come out, you know, and they're reading the morning paper which means they're, they're noticing all the footprints of the animals and mm-hmm. they notice, oh yeah, you know, Mrs. Hyena is kind of upset with Mr. Hyena and looks like the elephants went off to breakfast a little early this morning. And mm-hmm. I mean, that's how they read <laughs> yeah. what's going on in the neighborhood. And, and so when you see these tracks, it's not just, oh yeah, I saw a line of tracks. It's like, I saw where a Sasquatch walked last night. Mm-hmm. That's What's great about it, I mean, what's what's great about that is, you know, for for you as an expert, I mean, you're you're someone who is uniquely qualified. I mean, you know, that's why we said at the top, your your interest is in, in bipedalism. You're interested in hominids. When it comes to footprints, I mean, who else can read them with an expert level? I mean, anyone can see them and say like, oh, that's interesting. But you know, in the book, 
I actually, yeah, I th I'm a fairly bright guy, but I got kind of lost with with some of the technical terms you were using. Sure. But you, but the point is that you were, you know, the dynamic features of the foot, and I think that's what kind of sold me on. There must be something going on here because you mentioned, you know, a foot, as you mentioned, grabbing the side of a ridge, um, you know, warping around a stone that was stepped on. Uh, you know, the toes and different different splayed toes, mud in between. These are the types of things that you can't hoax. And because that seems to be the kind of, you know, it's the it's the swamp gas equivalent, you know, for UFOs. Yeah. Uh, that's, yeah. the, you know, the, the wooden feet is the is the equivalent in Bigfoot lore. Uh, and so that's what I really I really appreciated that. And. I didn't really realize that you were able to find ridges, the dramatic glyphs. Like, that was really interesting to me. Um, so that, just to be clear, you can really see the de that, that fine of detail with using plaster to, to cast these things? Well, e even before, yes. If, if the circumstances are present, and that is, first you have to have a substrate that has a fine mm. enough texture. Right. The particle size has to be fine enough that it picks up. You know, it's just like resolution of a of, of a of a picture. If the, if you don't have enough DPI, mm -hmm. then you know you can't see fine detail upon enlargement. But if the if the texture of the soil is sufficient, it will pick up those fine details. Even down to the pores, there were some. Yeah, yeah, some you mentioned debate. that. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, there was some some debate about whether what Grover Krantz had interpreted as the pores, because that's one of the distinguishing characteristics of dermatoglyphics, is basically those ridges develop as little papilla around sweat pore, sweat gland uh, pores, and uh, that that coalesce into the ridges. And uh, we did some experiments to demonstrate that yeah, you could with very fine uh, fine substrates. But in any case, you have to have that. You have to have circumstances that will allow the survival, the persistence of that fine detail. Like in, in my case, um, on, on this occasion in 96, it was a overclass kind of overcast, rather drizzly day. Mm -hmm. And the high humidity and moisture and inundation tends to kind of wash out those little details. And then you have to have uh, plaster and have it mixed to the proper consistency that you that the plaster will pick up that fine of detail, and it certainly can. It certainly can. It's capable if if it's present and isn't uh, obliterated during the casting process. So yeah, it's um, it 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 was impressive. Unfortunately, by the time my brother and I were able to to uh, round up some materials, some find a hardware store on Sunday afternoon that was uh, um, still open, and get the plaster and buckets and paint stirring sticks and so forth by the time we got back up there those kinds of details were not uh were no longer present to be seen so none of the casts that i made on that occasion actually show dramatoglyphic mm. detail it's just my own uh you know my own testimony of that or observation of that well and i think that's you know a couple of things are interesting in that story number one you know it, it's all it, it's part of the 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 lore around Bigfoot that the things that prove it the most are the things that disappear the quickest, you know, and sure. which is true of any story, really. And it sure. makes sense because, you know, the mud is it's an impression in mud, which is a dynamic, you know, fluid, a Newtonian fluid that is going to come back up and become regular mud again. It's going to fill back in. Exactly. It's going to move. It's dynamic. So that's part one. But, you know, part two to that is 
it seems to be all the people who are looking for Sasquatch seem to have like truckloads of plaster of Paris sitting around. I wouldn't even know how to cast a foot if I stumbled across one, which then made <laughs> me want to learn immediately because if I ever stumble across one, I'm going to want my own cast. But I mean, how right. do you, you know, I mean, is, is there, there must be a science to it and to be able to capture the detail an academic scientific level of detail that's required to make it a useful, you know, uh, useful cast. Well, there is, it, it, it takes a little practice. Uh, and, uh, you know, and I've seen, you know, less than successful attempts. Uh, one, one fellow sent me a cast and he had uh, mixed the plaster much too thickly. So instead of pouring it, it came out in globs and blobs. And so when, when you turned it around, it looked like a bag, you know, have you ever seen a bag of marshmallows that gets squashed in the bottom <laughs> yeah. of the picnic basket and overheated a little bit? Yeah, yeah. It was just pressed together like that. So you had the overall shape, kind of, but no details whatsoever. So, you know, in my field guide, I published a kind of a how-to field guide to Sasquatch, uh, a Sasquatch field guide uh, through Paradise K Publishers. And one of the one of the key little tutorials is how to make a plaster cast mm. with the admonition that, Hey, if you want to do this, you should practice. Mm -hmm. Don't let a Bigfoot track be your first attempt. Right. You know? yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so, and it's great to start collecting examples of the, uh, the common forms of wildlife that are out there, your own footprints for comparison. Mm. And that's a good way to practice. But, yeah. uh, yeah, it, it just, it's not rocket science. I mean, I, I try to, uh, to dispel, you know, even your comment I did in, in my book, I must admit, I pulled out the stops a bit. You know, I tried to write that book in a way that it was very accessible to the non, uh, professional and non-technical reader. But when it comes to the footprints, you know, it's kind of like, as we were discussing, I want the reader to realize that there is something to this, right? Yeah. This isn't just a, you know, a, a, something to gloss over or to, uh, to dumb down that if you, even if you have to reach a little bit, I mean, I think it was, it's still accessible, but there is a lot of technical aspect and, and I want the reader to realize that, that the evidence withstands that kind of technical scrutiny. Mm -hmm. It holds up to it. Yeah. These aren't just spurious, you know, uh, facsimiles of enlarged human footprints carved out of wooden planks strapped to someone's, uh, you know, hiking boots. They, they are dynamic signatures, traces of the movements of a, of a living, breathing, uh, biological entity. And, uh, they have all the hallmarks, uh, of, of a distinctive, adaptation that is biomechanically sound and absolutely evolutionarily adaptive and appropriate to the habitat these creatures presumably uh, live in and the manner in which they locomote as described by eyewitnesses as witnessed on the Patterson Gimlin film you know those consistent distinctions are reflected in the correlative anatomy of the that dynamic signature that's the footprint you know realize a footprint is not a mold of a static foot. It's the, it's the, it's the record. It's the mm -hmm. uh, imprint, uh, um, uh, record of the whole step cycle. Well, at least the, the stance phase of step cycle, the support phase when the foot is interacting with the soil. And so they're, 
there is a, a flow and a dynamic to it, uh, those signature characteristic features can be read and say something and, and convey something about that kinematic, we call it in, in the business, the, the movement <laughs> the of biz. the foot. <laughs> in the biz. Yeah. Uh, what, what I love about that is it's the only thing really. I mean, I think there have been some, some hair uh, samples and, and some scatological right. stuff you talk about, vocalizations. So footprints aren't the only thing. And I want to talk about right. the other stuff in a second. But the footprints are the main evidence, which is it's, it's so funny as a novice to call it evidence because it's really the absence of the thing. You know, right. I mean, because it's, there's nothing there, but it, something was there and created this whole, you know, you know th this, yeah. it's literally right. the impression it made on the world as it walked through and you're trying to capture the essence of that. And exactly. what makes you so, what makes what you, your, your specialty so important is you can, you know, you know, almost like a psychic reads tea leaves. I, mean, I guess <laughs> maybe you may not find that analogy to be perfect, but, uh, but, you know, but you can take that footprint and that footprint says way more to you than it would to someone like me. And right. it's easy for someone like me, an average person, to say, oh, it's hoax, it's a wooden footprint. Yeah. But I, I have to admit, so first of all, I wanna talk about exactly what you can read in the footprint, but I have to give you credit because in the book, you lay out how hoaxing is actually way more difficult than there actually being a Bigfoot around. It's actually less yeah. likely for it to be a hoax. Yeah. And I think we're so used to, as a public, when we hear something that seems fantastical, the expo the official quote unquote explanations for them seem reasonable on their surface. It seems reasonable that someone right. would want to hoax them. You know, crop circles are routinely hoaxed. Now, there are some stories of crop circles that no one's admitted to hoaxing and no one can really find a source. However, right. the seed of doubt is always placed because there are right. legitimate hoaxers. But with Bigfoot tracks, it seems like, oh, that's the easy answer. But it's really difficult. It's it's really hard because they're not six foot apart or whatever the normal human stride is. These are, I think, you're seventy two feet in the stride. The stride is gigantic. Um, the the impression into the soil would indicate a much larger animal. And one of the things that really most people would not think about is if you're wearing wooden feet. Mm -hmm. It's it acts like a snowshoe. A snowshoe is designed to spread out your weight over a large area and actually will not indent into the soil very far. And you will have that same the same physics will apply to a wooden foot. That's the type of stuff that you really lay out that makes hoaxing. I just want listeners to, to hear this, that hoaxing is actually extraordinarily difficult and requires intense planning and a lot of equipment, uh, which I didn't realize. Sure. Um, but let's, so let's talk about the foot because I think it's important for people to understand what are some of the things, you know, in brief, obviously, but what are some of the things that when you get a good impression, you can tell the size, shape, movement, what, what are you seeing? What stands out to you immediately when you see a good footprint cast? Well, it, there, there, first, there's a there's a huge spectrum of quality of of footprint, and uh, and you know, oftentimes there's a, a certain bias that's introduced by presenting the best examples to illustrate a point. So when you thumb through the book, you know, you see, and I'm and I'm a very visual learner and teacher. Uh, there's lots of illustrations of these 
very complete, very perfect looking casts. And that, that perfection, it does, I mean, it does two things it, for the skeptic. It, it, it conveys the notion, oh, they look too good. Right. Yeah, right. You know, it just, yeah, yeah. but, and then also for the, um, sometimes for the, um, the, uh, novice enthusiast, there's the expectation that there are lots and lots of footprints. You're going to find all kinds of footprints right. and, and they're very rare, relatively, uh, and absolutely very rare. Um, so, I mean, obviously the thing that you're looking for is, uh, uh they're big is <laughs> the first thing. It's so big size, foot. And, and I, and I say that, I mean, it seems rather trite, but we get a lot of, of, uh, candidates offered as Bigfoot tracks that are human sized. There's been a, a, an increase in the number of people who have, uh, have, uh, posted, you know, on social media or whatever, or sent to me, uh, photos or casts of footprints that are in the, you know, eight to 11 inch range, which is an adult human size range. So, uh, Sasquatch tracks are, are big. So what, what else? Well, I, I, let me, let me qualify that. Of course, they're not born big. They're not all big. There is the possibility of Sasquatch tracks in the range of eight to 11 inches as well. Uh, in other words, a juvenile Sasquatch, but, um, how would they be distinguished from a human foot? Some of the features that, that clearly distinguish a Sasquatch track from human include, um, the greater breadth. You talked about, you know, dispersing weight over a larger area. Well, the Sasquatch is challenged with a much greater mass mm. over a relatively smaller surface area as, you know, as, as, uh, an organism increases in linear dimensions, height and breadth, their volume increases to the cube of those linear dimensions, whereas a surface area only increases to the square. So unless um, something is, is disproportionate, in other words, if you just increase a human to the size of a Sasquatch and their feet are still the same shape, there's going to be problems. And, and we see that in giants with human anatomy. Mm -hmm. they, they, their arches collapse, they have problems with their joints, right. et cetera, et cetera. So a Sasquatch adapted to that large body mass has a much wider foot for its breadth. It has an archless foot so that there aren't concentrated points of pressure beneath the heel and the ball of the foot. Rather, the weight's distributed out over the entire surface area. Um, they've retained in combination with that lack of the evolution of an arch, a much greater range of mobility to the midfoot and, uh, an adaptation that's, you know, employed in arboreal or tree dwelling great apes in their grasp climbing when they hold on to a vertical tree trunk or a branch to, with their feet to climb up it. These creatures aren't in the trees, but they're, they're negotiating very steep, broken, rugged terrain. You know, they're not restricted down to the flatlands or to the trails or roads, switchbacks, but they're um, moving up and down steep terrains. And that midfoot flexibility provides a tremendous amount of dexterity to the foot. Um, and in combination with that, the, the mobility of the midfoot then with the lack of concentration under a very limited area under a ball of the foot allows for the distribution of weight over the entire forefoot. And the toes, as a result, can remain longer. Human toes have got as short as they have, in part, because we toe off during the last part of our step 
our support uh, uh, phase of the step. And, and when we toe off, there are um, the toes dorsiflex. They bend upward and they're, they're, they're stressed as they're bent. And uh, the long curved digits of something like a chimpanzee don't tolerate that bending stress so well, but a shorter, straighter toe does. So human toes have gotten much, much shorter. Sasquatch are kind of intermediate. They've still retained some of that grasping prehensile ability to a greater extent than we have. And as, and that would be a great advantage, you can imagine. Even if they were to clutter up, you know, uh, trees, especially as, uh, as young adults where they're less heavy, to uh, escape predators or to go after resources, you know, maybe a bird's nest and some eggs or mm-hmm. who knows what. So those are the breadth, the lack of the arch, the retention, the midfoot flexibility, the long, longer toes. And obviously their toes have never been confined by shoe wear. That's a huge tell. Mm-hmm. You can, you know, if you have an eight inch, 10 inch foot that has a pronounced arch, a narrow heel, and a little toe that's curled in and bent on its side. So the nail almost uh, uh, is pointing completely uh, outwardly. That's a human footprint. I mean, there's just no getting around it. If it, if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, it's a duck. <laughs> right, if, yeah. If something has an arch and a narrow heel and a little toe that's crimped in from wearing shoes, then it's not a Sasquatch, it's a human. Yeah. So, so it's again, it's not really rocket science. That's not. That just a, uh, an ability to identify those features just takes a little thought and a little practice. I, you know, I encourage people, hey, you know, you've got the internet. You can create a, a visual archive of human, non-human. You know, you can do bears, you can do great apes, you can do lo- to loads of Sasquatch prints, and and develop that search image. Start to identify the characteristics that define the search image for each of those groups that distinguishes them from one another. And just with a little practice, you know, you can become much more confident in your ability to differentiate you know i try to walk when when people send me things that are very obviously bare or that are very obviously human i just you know bring it over and do some editing and overlays and so forth and try to have a little one-on-one tutorial so that the next time they hopefully will recognize those features and be one less misidentification you know, I think that that's really important to note because it, it dispels the myth that these are uniform wood-carved prints being used by a hoaxer. I, I mean, what you're saying is these are dynamic. Each footprint is individual. Each footprint is telling the story of who or what came through the area. And I think at least to me it says that there's something else a foot going on. Uh, there's something else going on here that I think requires further study, further investigation. But if people want to take up that that uh, investigation, they want to solve this mystery or at least lend a helping hand. I know you're not as hard to find as Bigfoot. So where can people find you? Well, of course, they can they can uh, get the book on Amazon, or uh, I'd also direct them to Paradise K. That's with a C, C A Y. Paradise. It's paraK.com is a publisher who has not only my book, but lots of other resources about Sasquatch. They've really got quite an interesting inventory, as well as my field guide, Sasquatch field guide, and and uh, the guide to relic hominoids around the world, the second field guide. We, you mentioned early on that I also edit 
a online uh, free access, open access referee journal, the Relic Hominoid Inquiry. And you can Google, again, the Relic Hominoid Inquiry. It'll take you right to it. Otherwise, it's www.isu.edu forward slash RHI. And that has a lot of uh, up-to-date as well as historical uh, items. Uh, It's been, um, you know, again, like I said, it's a bona fide journal. It's in its 10th year of publication. We have research uh, articles uh, printed. We've got um, excellent essay, you know, lengthy book reviews, in-depth book reviews, uh, commentaries, news items, historical pieces translated from other languages. We have several contributions from Mary Jean Kaufman, for example, who was the expert on the Russian Almas that were largely unavailable to to Anglophones uh, until recently here. And then, uh, you know, uh, otherwise, I don't. I don't have a web page per se. I do have a Facebook page, and and you know, try to post some things to keep conversations going, get people thinking. And that's under my my full name, Don Jeffrey Meldrum. Uh, and and you have t- a Twitter as well, right? I don't know if you use it a lot, but I I don't use it. You know, I think I do have a Twitter account, but I haven't honestly haven't opened it in, so I don't use it. I'm just I'm I'm not as steeped in social media as as uh, I probably should be given the interest in the subject. No, that's all right. Well, I'm going to put all that stuff on the website, even the unused Twitter account, because I feel like, <laughs> like Sasquatch, you'll make an appearance on there uh, pretty often, often enough to keep interest. So, um, you know, this has been just an incredible conversation. Dr. Jeffrey Meldrum, thank you so much for being on the show today. My pleasure. Thanks for the opportunity to visit about a fascinating subject. And I want to thank everyone for listening. Have a good night. Fascinating Nouns was a Glenn co-production and is hosted and produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The show producer for this episode was Sarah Brandt. The Fascinating Nouns introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and E.A. Barrientos with music and sound design written and performed by E.A. Barrientos. Now, if you like this show, you got to subscribe. You can find us on all the major podcasting platforms. And while you're there, could you take a second to rate and review the show? It really helps us out by uh, just telling other people about the show. Give them your thoughts, your comments on our episodes. I would really appreciate it. And of course, if you're not already subscribed to a podcasting platform or don't even know what that is, we got you covered. Go to fascinatingnouns.com for a ton of resources on the show, including links to our podcasts at the bottom of the page. You can even find our social media right there, Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, YouTube, and Twitter, all right there at the bottom of the Fascinating Nouns webpage. And while you're there, go to the top. Check out our episodes. We got them organized by guest name and by episode number right there at the top of the page. You can check out all the new stuff. And sometimes we talk about different links, different news articles, and even some videos and images. They're all right there on each show's individual episode page. Fascinatingnouns.com is where you find all that good stuff. And if you like this show, you're going to like everything that I do. Go to danieljglenn.com to find out more. Thank you for listening. And of transmission.